I'm sure you all have noticed how obsessed people are with time. Our days are broken down into things to be accomplished by a certain time. Wake up. Well, some of you wake up at an absurd time. But for me, you know, wake up 6.30 a.m., you know, get to work at 8.30, lunch at noon, except I don't eat lunch. Back to work at what? Supper, 6.30, 7 o'clock, bed at 10. But what did people do before clocks? Basically, they didn't. I would not do anything, but do without clocks. People have been obsessed with time since the beginning of time. The first timekeeping devices we know of are the Egyptian obelisks of 3500 B.C. The obelisks are those buildings that look a lot like the Washington Monument, which is an obelisk. And the first timekeeping devices were for religious worship. That's why time was invented. Those Egyptian obelisks were actually giant sundials, the idea of which were imported from Babylon. Now, why did those Egyptians need to know the time, other than the worship? Was there somewhere that they needed to be? Were they worried they were going to be late? To what? You know, nevertheless, the ancients spent the next 3,000 years perfecting the sundial, uh, even making astronomical versions uh, that charted the uh, movement of the stars. And if you ever wondered if people back then rued the day the sundial was invented because it took over their lives, the answer is yes. Around 200 B.C., the Roman playwright Titius Macius Plautus complained in one of his plays that sundials chop his life into little pieces. I love that, don't you? Chop his life into little pieces. And in the 4th century B.C., the water clock was becoming common. It was a device that used flowing water to move an hour hand along I don't know what it looks like, but it uh, used flowing water to move an hour hand so that they knew what the time was. And before you make a joke about an alarm, a water clock, you're 2,400 years too late. Plato invented one about 400 B.C. So, an alarm water clock, just to let you know. I could give you more clock history, but that's really not why we're here today. We're picking back up where we left off last week. Last week we read, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. We cover scripture at a dizzying pace here at Mountain Reformed Church, so we're going to pick up from there now. I mentioned that this defense by the Apostle Peter is the first Christian sermon. He starts out by standing and explaining the miracle everyone has just witnessed the rushing of wind, the flames resting on the gathered believers, to the point that witnesses said, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? 
And then, of course, there were the inevitable scoffers. But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. You know, I think that in uh, many cases, it's not that scoffers of Christianity do not believe because of the facts. But they don't care enough to think through the facts and make a decision. They are truly agnostic without knowledge and without a desire to gain that knowledge. Whereas those who said, what does this mean? Are also without knowledge, agnostic once again, but are receptive to finding out the facts. Which group may be responding to the call of Christ and which is turning away in ignorance? Peter begins his sermon by addressing his audience in verse 14b. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Here he is addressing the people of Judea and Jerusalem and not the proselytes that were gathered there, not, not the others. He's probably standing... Well, in front of the temple, it's supposed that the upper room was very close to the temple. They probably left the upper room after the, uh, act, uh, after the miracles accompanied at Pentecost and went into the temple to where people were gathered. Anyway, he uh, addresses the uh, people of Judea and Jerusalem. And here we get to Jewish timekeeping. For these men are not drunk as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day. Now I looked up to find if sundials were in use in in, uh, Judea or Israel and found some ancient ones but was unsuccessful at finding out what age they were. So I don't really know that sundials were used in Israel. The sources that I saw said that timekeeping in Israel was a little sloppy because really they did rely on the sun. The day was broken into six, uh, 12 hours starting at, six, at sunrise. Hours were longer in the summer than they were in the winter because they were working off the sun. They, uh, and I even found somebody who said telling time at night was harder, okay, on one of my commentators. Well, yeah, telling time is, the only time you actually know at night is midnight when the darkness is directly overhead. So, anyway, telling time at night was harder than telling time in the daytime. Then again, in the Bible it says only a thief is out at night. So, uh, I guess they didn't really have to worry about the time at night. The first hour of the day thus corresponded with 6 a.m. On a feast day such as was Pentecost or on any Sabbath, the Jews fasted until after worship and worship came at the ninth hour. So they fasted until uh, at the nine o'clock hour, the third hour. And so they fasted until the fourth hour. Part of the fasting would include no alcoholic beverages. So Peter defends himself and his fellow Galileans uh, with with faint praise. Basically, he says, we're not drunk because it's too early. 
but it's 10 a.m. somewhere. With that defense out of the way, Peter goes into the body of his sermon, early apostolic preaching, according to F.F. Bruce, generally falls into four parts. The announcement that the age of fulfillment has arrived, then the history of the ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then the Old Testament scriptures whose fulfillment proves Jesus is the Messiah, and finally a call to repentance. So now in verse 16, Peter announces that the day of fulfillment has arrived. He says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. This passage in Joel was a prophecy of the coming of God's kingdom and supernaturally had details that had just come to pass with Pentecost. We'll read the whole passage and then go verse by verse. And, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I've said it before, but how could the uh, Jewish rulers not recognize the days that they were in? It's not just this passage in Joel that talks about the last days and the coming of the kingdom of God. Isaiah 44 says, But hear now, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob, and another will write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. And Zechariah 12, 10, 11 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Rimmon in the plain of Megiddo. I sometimes wish God would be a little bit more clear. What did he mean by when they look at me on whom they have pierced? It is a puzzlement, as they say in the king and I. And then don't get me started on Isaiah 53. So in verse 17, Peter quotes Joel. And in the last days, God declares, Peter sees the pouring out of the Holy Spirit as the beginning of the last days prophesied by Joel. John MacArthur points out that the last days is a common Old Testament phrase that denotes the time when the Messiah 
would set up his kingdom. But it was unclear to the Jews of the time, to the Old Testament mind, that there would be two comings of the Messiah, separated by a substantial period of time, two different last days. Old Testament uh, prophecies talk about both of these last days without differentiating between them. Would you be surprised to find out that the first mention of the last days comes in the first book of the Bible, Genesis? From the very beginning, God is talking about the last days. Jacob on his deathbed prophesies about the last days of the old covenant and of the nation of Israel. He gives a blessing to his 12 sons, but it's actually giving what is going to happen to the tribes of Israel. Chapter 49 of Genesis says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I might tell you what happens to you in days to come. And days to come is translated, actually means the last days. The New King James Version has it that way, in the last days. And Jacob goes on to tell his 12 sons, the father of the the fathers of the 12 tribes what becomes of the 12 tribes of Israel in the last days of the old covenant assemble and listen O sons of Jacob listen to Israel your father Reuben you are my firstborn my might and the first fruits of my strength preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power unstable as water you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed then you defiled it he went up to my couch. It doesn't sound good for the tribe of Reuben here. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now, it's still not real good so far. Zebulun will, shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. This car is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Finally, we have a good one. It's of Joseph. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attack him, shot at him, harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. As his brothers knew and said earlier, um, that always liked Joseph the best. But remembering that this is the last days of Old Covenant prophecy, Jacob's blessing of Judah encompasses both Old Covenant, the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant. He says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him 
and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his pole to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. This is the famous messianic prophecy given to Judah from whom Christ would come. The scepter should, would not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff. To him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. God's plan for salvation was from eternity and shows it at the very beginning of the Bible. In Deuteronomy, Moses, whom God made the uh, old covenant with, basically, tells the Israelites, For I know that after my death you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come, evil will befall you, because you will do what is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger through the works of your hands. And in the days to come is also a last days passage. There's 72 last days passages in the Bible, many of them in the Old Testament. From the vantage point afforded by the last 2,000 years, we can more clearly see the two last days. Jesus Christ's dual mission. The Old Covenant's last days were ushered in by Jesus' birth. His ministry and his death. Despite the whole New Testament being about him, Jesus was an Old Testament figure. Just as John the Baptist is called the last Old Testament prophet. Jesus lived under the Old Covenant. And by his sinless life brought an end to the Old Covenant. Indeed, in Luke 22.20, Jesus said, Last Supper scene, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten, he took the cup after eating, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus didn't just usher in the new covenant. He was the new covenant. His first mission was as a suffering servant to suffer and die for the sins of his people. His second mission was to usher in his kingdom by the setting up of his church. That these kingdom last days have lasted 2,000 years now is a kindness. It's a kindness to the millions of Gentiles and Jews who have been adopted by God and grafted into his kingdom. Acts 17b says, God will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Old Testament saints did have, some did have the spirit, the Holy Spirit uh, given to them, but selectively, one or two at a time. Women also had the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament times. Deborah, a judge of Israel, is one example. But now at Pentecost, God has indeed poured out his spirit on all flesh. All believers receive God's spirit. Had not just a special insight into the ways of God, but God's insight. The spirit of God is the most powerful force possible in this world. And it can be seen in many ways, not just by how it changed Peter from a fearful, Christ-denying coward into a fiery evangelist who was willing and would 
go to his death proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter continues on in his sermon as he quotes the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. There are three parallelisms going on here. Sons and daughters, young men, old men, and manservants and women servants. The Holy Spirit has been poured out not just on men and men of a certain age or standing. The Spirit has been poured out on all believers. The Holy Spirit has made both sexes equal and remember this is at a time when a woman's testimony was not accepted at trial as being not trustworthy. The same with age. Old and young believers are equal. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on both. You might say that older men are wiser, make better pastors. Uh, if, you, uh, if you're going to insist on saying that, I'm going to point you to Charles Spurgeon, who was filling a pulpit at the age of 18 and preaching in the most prestigious and largest church in England by the time he was 20. The Holy Spirit is poured out on all of us equally. And uh, age does not matter at all with the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and neither does class, and he points that out. Male servants, manservants, slaves, they all receive the Holy Spirit. Remember that a slave basically could be put to death at any time, almost for any reason. Uh, Jesus died a slave's death. But here... Peter is saying that slaves and servants and women servants are all Christians and receive the Spirit. Being a slave did not matter to Paul. The book of Philemon is a book written to a slave master about a runaway slave and pleading with him and actually calling on him to treat him as a brother in Christ. Your social strata, your class, does not matter in Christianity. The only thing that matters is who you belong to, Jesus Christ, who has adopted you as a child, God the Father, and who fills you, the Holy Spirit. Nothing else in the world matters at all. Peter continues on in his sermon, continuing to cite the... Uh, prophet Joel and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes the great and magnificent day there are some who say that some of these signs were present already at, uh, at the crucifixion we know and contemporary historians say that there was darkness at the third hour and they couldn't explain it they knew that there had been no eclipse and yet the sky went dark some commentator says and perhaps as the sun came back uh, the sky was as blood we don't know that that's conjecture I simply seem to think that 
This is referring to when Jesus returns in his second coming. It has overtones of revelation with the sun to darkness and the moon to blood. Then Peter finishes this citation of Joel with verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, I, I think a lot about Bill Street preaching. I do, because it's not something that appeals to me at all, and I'm glad Bill's doing it. As a matter of fact, when we were at the quarterly gathering, I was talking to a, uh, a pastor, one of the pastors at Trinity uh, uh, Reformed Baptist, and uh, he asked me what my role in the church was, and I said, I'm the one who preaches to the choir. And uh, he laughed at that, but it's true, I do preach to the choir, and teaching believers is an important part of a pastor's job. But if I were preaching in the uh, streets, probably about the only thing that I would say is call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Because that's what they're told to do. It's just, not just Joel that says this. Romans 10.13. Paul says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, that seems rather simple. Call on the name of the Lord. Be saved. Why doesn't everyone do that? Now you might say that it isn't, that just isn't how it works. And I'm here to tell you that yes it is. That is how it works. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. See, my non-believing friends will not call on the name of the Lord even if they didn't mean it. They will not call on the name of the Lord. They're not interested enough to listen to the word. As we saw earlier with the crowd in Jerusalem, some said, what does this mean? And the others said, they're drunk. Well, my non-believing friends are the ones who say you're drunk. But they they would no sooner call on the name of the Lord than than what? I, I can't give you. The ones who do call on the name of the Lord are the ones that the Lord has called to call on him. The ones who do not would rather perish in their non-belief. And I firmly believe that. You know, when I do my study and write these sermons, you know, I, I do three parts. A, you know, is sort of like a setup. And I look for something that's, B is the body. And then C, I hope there's a C. I hope, I hope something comes to me. Why did I, why did I you, uh, go into clocks at the beginning? You know, I really can't tell you that except it appealed to me. Clocks and timekeeping, well, you know, uh, Peter talks about the hour. It's only the third hour, so they're not drunk. But, you know, I'm, you're all probably surprised I actually study and write these things. But, but there was a reason I was inspired by the clocks and the hour of the day. And I didn't know why until I found this. And I finally decided to see how many times sundials or time measuring devices were in the Old, Old Testament. And there's only one instance. Well, there's twice, but it's the same story. One is in Isaiah 38, and the second is, uh, is in Second Kings chapter 20. It's the same account and the same timekeeping device. 
In many translations, it's called the sundial of Ahaz. In the English Standard Version, it's called the dial of Ahaz. Ahaz was a king of Israel, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was not just a good king. He actively sought to do good for his people. He he strove to serve God. He was a righteous man. Tried to keep his nation on God's path. But then he got sick, and he stayed sick. In Isaiah 38, it says, Isaiah came to him. Well, that's not a good sign. Isaiah came to him on his sickbed and said, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall not recover. If Isaiah says that to you, that's bad news. Old Testament prophets had to be 100% accurate with their prophecies. And then it says, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. Hezekiah was shocked. He couldn't die. He had more to do. Not only that, he had no children. And the prophecies of the Messiah said they were coming through him. Because he was a descendant of David and he was the person it would come through. Were the prophecies wrong? Was everything he believed a lie? Verses 4 through 8 says, Then the word of God came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, and the other account says he hadn't even gotten out the door of the palace yet. Uh, Hezekiah prayed. Isaiah was still in the palace, just leaving. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. This shall be a sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this that he has promised. Behold, I will make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz turn back ten steps. So the sun turned back on the dial the ten steps on which it had declined. The sundial of Ahaz, but was it actually a sundial? They weren't to be invented for another 300 years. Let's go to 2 Kings and see what it says. Isaiah brings the bad news to Hezekiah, and then Hezekiah prays to God, and oh, here's where it was. Before Isaiah had gone out of the middle court, the word of the Lord came to him, turn back and say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer, I have seen your tears, behold, I will heal you. On the third day you shall go up to the house of the Lord, and I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And Isaiah said, Bring a cake of figs and let them take and lay it on the boil and he, then he may, that he may recover. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me? 
and that I shall go up to the house of the Lord on the third day. And Isaiah said, This shall be the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do the thing that he has promised. Shall the shadow go forward ten steps or go back ten steps? And Hezekiah answered, It is an easy thing for the shadow to lengthen ten steps rather than the shadow to go back up ten steps. So here we have two accounts. One says it's a sundial. And this one says it's steps. Well, the royal palace of Hezekiah overlooked the temple. And the steps of Ahaz were a private kingly entrance to the temple that his father had made improvements to. So it was called the steps of Ahaz. It was not a sundial at all. And the discrepancy is in the translation. Steps is the same word in Hebrew, mayalah, for degrees, which a sundial has. It's the same word for terraces, or stairs, or stories as in towers. So it's a multi-purpose word. So the timekeeping device was not a sundial at all, but the way the sun fell on the steps of the temple. But the point of this closing is not about timekeeping, but time. Hezekiah knew it was not his time. He had more to do. He couldn't possibly die yet. I've told you the story before of my great uncle Harold. But I'll tell it again because it's a it's a good anecdote, and I love it. My great uncle Harold was the original Jesus freak, and I really do mean that. Uh, before before the Jesus freaks were around, he was going up to people on the streets and saying, God loves you. Jesus loves you. And he had gone to France in World War I. I do not know what he did there. I do not know what he saw there. All I know is that he prayed in 1918 that if God would spare him in France, he would serve God the rest of his life. And he, both of them kept that deal. And when my great uncle finally, he was 86, and he came down with um, cancer. And when he got the diagnosis, he said, no. He said, that's wrong. He said, I'm not done yet. I've got more to do. God doesn't want me. Well, God did <laughs> want him. And uh, he did. He did die, but this is how a Christian should be at the end of their life. This is my charge to you at the end of your life. No, God, I've got more to do. Even when you're old and tired, I've got more to do for you. Should be, should be our cry. And back to Hezekiah. He was so thankful to God that he began writing songs of praise. We have them today. They're the Psalms 120 through 134. The Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Steps. Which is why I changed my uh, call to worship. Psalm 121, our call to worship. I lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord 
who made heaven and earth. A song of Hezekiah. Grateful to the Lord. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I do pray that we, we when we're old, say, say, I have more to do. I haven't stopped serving you. My time is not done. Let that be how we live our lives as Christians, how we live our lives as men before you, willing to serve to the point of saying, this can't be. I have more to do. I pray this is our prayer in Jesus' name.